You're listening to Pastor David Gusick preach through the Book of Acts at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. The theme from the Book of Acts is Spirit-Driven. And with that, I'd like you to open your Bibles this morning to the Book of Acts, Chapter 2. We left off last time uh, at the very beginning of the Book of Acts, Chapter 2, and we decided that it was going to take us, oh, several weeks to get through Chapter 2 because there's so much in it. The last time we were together, we dealt with just those first four verses where it spoke about this very unique filling of the Holy Spirit that came upon the disciples. And when I say disciples, I don't mean just the twelve. I mean the broader group of 120 disciples that were gathered together there after Jesus had ascended into heaven, up to heaven, and had told them to wait for this coming, to wait for this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So there they were gathered together and at the right time, the right place, 10 days after Jesus ascended to heaven, on the day of Pentecost, and I like how it says it there in the first verse, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, it describes this unique outpouring of the Holy Spirit that came upon those assembled disciples. And that outpouring of the Holy Spirit was accompanied with some very distinctive phenomenon. First, there was a sound that filled the room. And it was the sound of a fast, uh, mighty wind. And they heard that sound. Secondly, there was this phenomenon. As the Holy Spirit came upon them of a flame of fire above each head. It it wasn't literal fire. The, The book of Acts specifically says that it was as of fire. Similar. That's the only thing you would describe it as. But it wasn't actually fire. Nobody's head was actually burning or on fire. They were nevertheless filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, we left that at verse 4, and we left for this week to discuss another phenomenon that happened in response to the filling of the Holy Spirit. And here we pick it up, verse 4, Acts chapter 2. It says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, friends, let's understand. The actual filling of the Holy Spirit... When the Holy Spirit fills an individual, it's an invisible process, is it not? You can't actually see it happening with your eyes. There's not a grace-o-meter on somebody's forehead that turns from red to green or or dial, you know, a needle that clicks to a certain... It's an invisible process. It can't be detected by normal human senses. But God wanted to testify to the fact that each one of these assembled people on the day of Pentecost was distinctly filled with the Holy Spirit. And so he gave them phenomena, such as the the thing that could only be described as a flame of fire above everybody else's head. And then now this phenomenon where each one of them began to speak with other tongues. In response to the filling of the Holy Spirit, Those present, and again I want to stretch, not only the twelve apostles, but all those present, began to speak with other tongues. These were languages that they were never taught. And they spoke these languages, speaking as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, as I was thinking about this and thinking through this with this week, of course, in preparation for what I would say to you on this morning about this text, the, the thought immediately came to my mind. I sort of turned it around for a while in my head. What a strange thing this was. I mean, isn't this strange? It's bizarre. 
Would we necessarily expect that that would be the effect of the filling of the Holy Spirit upon a person? That, that instantly, they would, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, be able to speak in a language that they had never spoken in before. And on that particular instance, everybody who was present was able to speak in that language. What a strange phenomenon. Now, when I say that language, I mean in their own language, because the text makes it very clear that each one of the 120 was speaking in a different, unique language unto them. And you know, there wasn't much in their Bibles that could have prepared them for this or predicted it. Now, they did hear Jesus say before he ascended into heaven that one of the signs that would follow those who believed in his name would be that they would speak with other tongues. And that's in Mark chapter 16, verse 17. Jesus told them that. But you know, Jesus never really explained what all of that meant as far as we can tell. Now, as far as we would know, these men, like most everybody else in their day, the men and women gathered in the room, uh, knew two or more languages that they often used. They, They knew Aramaic, which was the common local language, and they would know Koine Greek, which was sort of the language of the broader Roman Empire. And maybe they knew other languages as well, but perhaps they had some knowledge of biblical Hebrew that they had picked up from their biblical studies. Yet this was speaking with other tongues with languages that they didn't previously know. And notice how it happened. Verse 4 gives you some indication where it says that they spoke as the Spirit gave them utterance. They did the uttering. The, The Holy Spirit did not say the words for them. I don't mean to sound weird about this, but it wasn't as if they just opened up their mouth and miraculously sound came out of their mouth without the exercise of their tongue or their, you know, uh, lungs or any of that. No, they had the utterance, but the words were inspired by the Holy Spirit and not from themselves. Now please, when the Holy Spirit gave them utterance, it wasn't as if he overpowered them and forced them to speak in these other languages. Notice the wording, he gave them utterance. It was something that he gave, I mean he meaning the Holy Spirit, and they received. It wasn't the same as when a person might be overpowered by an evil spirit when they're demon-possessed, right? And we know this because later on in the text... When it came time for Peter to preach his sermon to everybody gathered, everybody stopped. In other words, it's not like these people were possessed by something that they could not control, but the Spirit was inspiring them, and the Spirit gave them the utterance, and they spoke forth the words. It was unusual, it was powerful, but it wasn't coercive. Now, what was it? What did they say? And why did they say it? Well, the text will explain more to us, starting with the reaction of the assembled crowd. Look at it here in verse 5. It says, And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from under, from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Now, please remember, at this time, Jerusalem was full of visiting people. People were visiting because it was the Feast of Pentecost, which was one of the major feasts that Jews from all over the Roman Empire and sometimes beyond came. 
and assembled there together in Jerusalem as much as they could. So there was a large cosmopolitan crowd there, devout men from every nation under heaven. And people from that crowd heard something. They heard a sound. I find it very interesting, as it says, they said they heard a sound. What was the sound that they heard? And I think it could be one of two things. It could have been that they heard the sound of the rushing mighty wind that filled the room that all the other disciples heard. Or it could be that they heard the sound of those disciples speaking out each in one of these individual languages that they were able to speak forth the great things of God. And when the crowd came, whatever drew them there, whatever the specific sound was that drew them to the place, then they heard each of these Christians speaking in their own foreign languages. Uh, Apparently the Christians could be heard from the windows or the open doors or maybe there were porches or porticos or something like that where they could be heard. Now, by the way, this gives us a little tip-off as to where the location of this meeting of 120 people was because there were not a lot of homes in that day or even in our own that could accommodate 120 people at one time. And there were not many homes that could accommodate that many people that had access to the thousands of people that would hear Peter's sermon. This was probably done in the temple courts area. And there were people all around milling about because it was feast time. It was Pentecost time. And there they were gathered together in Jerusalem. And they heard the sound that they went over to where the sound was coming from. And what was their reaction? It's very interesting what it says there in verse six. It says that the reaction was that they were confused. Right? They were confused. The immediate reaction of the crowd was not, Oh, what a marvelous blessing. It was not, Wow, God is really doing something. No, it was confusion. And by the way, that's exactly what we would expect understanding later New Testament passages on this very theme. So there they are. The crowd's attracted. They've heard something. They're gathered together. And then they begin talking. The crowd is going to begin analyzing what they see and hear right in front of them. And verse 7 begins their, their uh, analyzation here. Let's take a look. Verse 7. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all those who speak Galileans? And I find that very interesting. They look at these guys and they can hear from their accents. They know from their backgrounds. Then maybe from the way that they're dressed. These guys are Galileans. Now, a Galilean wasn't exactly the same as a country hick. But kind of. They certainly weren't sophisticated or as holy as the people in Jerusalem were, right? Jerusalem and Judea. And so they look at these people from Galilee and they say, you know, how could these guys, these guys don't go to school. These guys don't have sophisticated training. How could they be able to speak in these other languages? It it added to their element of surprise, knowing that these people were from Galilee. Okay, let's begin again. Verse seven. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and those dwelling in Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. 
So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, they are full of new wine. So when we come into verse 7, we see that their immediate reaction was confusion, but it didn't stay there. Then they were amazed and marveling at what they saw. The idea is that they didn't know what to make of what they heard and they saw all these people who were able to speak diverse languages that they obviously had not been trained in and many of the people present there at that group, I think there's 12 or 15 groups, something mentioned in that list, they heard distinct languages back home. The, 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 the guy from, uh, well, let's say the guy from Egypt said, hey, he's speaking my language. Isn't that strange? This guy's Galilean. How can he speak my language or my home language? Uh, Parthian or Amid, hey, they're speaking are distinct dialects. What's up with that? And they made this comment. They're all speaking who are Galileans. And they said, we hear them speaking. Verse 11 is key here. We hear them speaking in our tongues the wonderful works of God. This is what the crowd heard the Christians speak. And from this remarkable event, all of them were amazed and perplexed, but some of them used it as a means for honest inquiry. Some of the crowd said, hey, this is interesting. What does this mean? What's God doing here? Other people in the crowd used it as an occasion to mock the Christians. They said, well, these people are just drunk. Look, at they're just drunk. They must be intoxicated. This is so strange. That's the only way we can explain it. But I think in the midst of the crowd reaction, we have a very good statement brought forth to us there in verse 12, where they simply asked, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Isn't that a great question? What does it mean? You have a very strange phenomenon here. What does it mean? What does it mean that these 120 people would spontaneously be given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit this ability to speak in other languages and declare the wonderful works of God? Well, what would it mean that God would do such a thing at that time and at that place? Well, I thought of five different things that it could mean. And I don't mean this to be an exhaustive list, but here's five that I thought of. First of all, it meant that the promise of Jesus was fulfilled. Because he promised in Mark sixteen seventeen, and these signs will follow those who believe they will speak with new tongues. Jesus promised that, right? So when it happened, well, you could say the promise of Jesus was fulfilled. Secondly, you could say that it meant that God was doing something new that would extend beyond the Jewish world or even beyond the Roman world at that time. They spoke in a wide variety of languages, giving the idea that what God was doing on Pentecost was for everybody, no matter what their nationality, no matter what their language was. Right, you're, you're from Parthia, you're from Media. This is for you. You're from Egypt, you're an Arab, you're from Crete, you're from the part adjoining Libya. This is all for you. It's not just a Jewish thing. It's not just a Roman thing. This is a all over the world thing. God is ministering something on the day of Pentecost. I think that was a big message from this variety of languages that came forth. Isn't it interesting you could say that in some respect, this is a, a swat, slight variation on what happened at the Tower of Babel, would you not? There, as a curse, God sent out a variety of languages. Here, as a blessing, God sends out a variety of languages. But he says this is for the whole world. 
Third, we could say that it meant that there was something uh, surprising and spontaneous about this new thing that God was doing. And that that the fact that God was doing something new should be a sign to warn those who were paying attention about the danger of rejecting what what God was doing. This was a clear announcement to all those Jewish people who were assembled there in the day. God saying, I'm doing something new. I'm doing something different. Pay attention here. There is a sign here that's meant to catch your attention and so that you would receive this new thing that God is doing. Fourthly, I think it meant that this new thing was for every one of them. I'm very struck in the text how it emphasizes that every one of them spoke in these new languages, right? It wasn't just one. It wasn't just the twelve. It wasn't just an elite core among them, but every one of them. And then number five, and finally on my list at least, I would say that it means that as promised, Jesus has ascended to heaven and now he's pouring out gifts upon his church through the work of the Holy Spirit, which he promised to do. And Paul explained more about that later in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 8, where he says that when he ascended to heaven, he sent down gifts by the Holy Spirit. And this is part of what Jesus was doing. And friends, this is very interesting. Because some of what happened on that day of Pentecost seems to be very unique to that day. I won't be bold enough to say absolutely unique, but at least somewhat unique to that day. I mean, we don't have any other cases in the biblical record of a sound of a mighty rushing wind where believers are gathered. We don't have any other record after this in the biblical record of tongues of what appeared to be fire coming up over the heads of believers. Those seem to be unique things. Ah, but this phenomenon of speaking in unknown languages, this is something that appears other times throughout the book of Acts and Paul deals with it many times in his letters. This aspect, this spontaneous, spirit-inspired speaking in unknown tongues, this is a gift given by Jesus to his church, and it abides in the New Testament. Again, being repeated, uh, repeatedly mentioned in the book of Acts and in the letters of Paul. And if we take a look at some of those other passages, it helps us to understand much more just what is going on here on the day of Pentecost. You see, when we study the New Testament, we find that this ability to spontaneously speak in an unknown language by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is a gift of communication between the believer and God. I'll say this one more time. When we study the New Testament, we find that this ability to spontaneously speak in an unknown language by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's primarily a gift of communication between the believer and God. And on what basis do I say that? I'll tell you that on the basis of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 2. We're going to put that verse right up here on the screen so you can see it. Make note of it. Look it up in your Bible later. But here it is. For he who speaks in an un, uh, who he speaks in a tongue, that is one of these unknown languages, he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. Let me read that again. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. 
Now, do you know what that means when it says that he does not speak to men, but to God? Here's what it means. It means he does not speak to men, but to God. (laughs) Friends, it's really not all that complicated. The words are right there on the page for us to understand. In other words, when God gives this gift of a spontaneous speech in an unknown language, that person is primarily addressing God. It is a gift of communication between that person and God, not from person to person. And friends, it is a very important distinction. When the Holy Spirit inspires somebody to speak this way, it's for the purpose of speaking to God and not men. And many people mistakenly interpret this incident in Acts chapter 2, assuming that the disciples use these unknown languages to preach to the gathered crowd. I think that a careful look at the text tells us that this idea is wrong. Notice carefully in verse 12 what it is that the people heard the disciples saying. It says that they were speaking the wonderful works of God. I believe they were declaring the praises of God. They were thanking Him with all their might. They were praising Him with all their strength in the eloquence of these unknown languages. And the gathered crowd merely overheard what the disciples so exuberantly declared to God in these unknown languages. Now, what's another reason I know this? Not only because it says that they were speaking the wonderful works of God. But the idea that the disciples communicated to the crowd in these tongues or preached to the crowd is plainly wrong because that crowd had a common language, Koine Greek. And when preaching time came, Peter stands up and preached to them all in that common language. You know, the way many people construct this in their mind is really totally a mistake. They say, well, look, you got this diverse international crowd. They all speak other languages. How are you ever going to speak to the crowd unless you speak with a lot of different languages? And God gave the gift of tongues to them on that thing so they could preach to the crowd in all these different languages. No, because you know what? The crowd had a common language, just like everybody did in the ancient Roman world. And they used it when Peter preached to the crowd. No, no, no. What the crowd overheard was the disciples speaking, as Paul would later say in 1 Corinthians 14, they heard the disciples speaking to God and not to man. They heard them speaking in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And therefore, we could say that this gift of tongues is a personal language of prayer given by God, whereby the believer communicates with God beyond the limits of knowledge and understanding. Now, Paul would later write this in a very interesting place. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 14. Notice what he says here. It's, a, it's an interesting verse. He says, If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Now, Paul recognized a few things. First of all, he recognized that he himself had this ability to pray in this unknown language. This was something that the Apostle Paul had. As a matter of fact, in another passage that I wish we had time to get to this morning, but we just don't, and that's okay. But Paul thanked God that he used this tool of communication between himself and God and that he used it often. 
Paul was very pro this particular gift of speaking in tongues or using this unknown language. But Paul says, I know that when I pray, he says, my spirit prays. He trusted that. He trusted that his spirit was connecting with God, was communicating with God, even though Paul himself didn't understand what he was saying, because not only was that language he was speaking unknown to anybody around him, it was also unknown to himself. And that's how he prayed. It's a funny thing with language, isn't it? I mean, now almost all my married life, I've been around foreign languages, right? My wife is Swedish. And even before me, I would hear her speak with her mother, with her family, with her sister. And even today, she's calling her mother on the phone. She's calling her sister on the phone. And they're speaking Swedish. Now, by this time, I understand a lot of what they're saying, certainly not everything. And if they wanted to mix it up on me, I couldn't understand much at all if they want to speak a little faster like that. But, but in the beginning, when I'm hearing them speak, I don't understand a thing. It just sounds like blah, 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 talking on the phone, right? There they are speaking with that. And it was the same experience for us when we went to Germany. Went to Germany. We didn't know German ahead of time. Now, I went there to become the director or to start, actually, an international Bible college. And to be honest, it wasn't necessary that I speak German to be the director of an international Bible college because the dominant language at that Bible college is, is English. It's not German. I mean, we would have students from sometimes 10, 11, 12 different countries, from South America, from Australia, from New Zealand, from Japan, from all over Europe. And when you got them all together around a table, the one common language that most everybody would have would be English. And so even though I didn't have to learn German to do my job there, I certainly wanted to. I mean, I wanted to be able to pray for people and interact with them. And sometimes when you hear it after a while, it just sounds like blah, blah, blah in your mind. There's no connection, no understanding. You don't get it. That's what it was like for Paul when he would pray. He would know that his spirit was praying. But as he says there in verse 14, my understanding is unfruitful. Now, friends, for some people, this bypassing of the understanding is undesirable. They don't want it. They never want to or feel the need to relate to God except by and through their understanding. And listen, while we value our intellect and our understanding... And while we dedicate ourselves to loving God with all of our mind, you know that's a command of Jesus, do you not? He said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, right? And all of your strength. No, we're, we're to value understanding and we're to love God with all of our mind. At the same time, we also appreciate the limits of our understanding and we thank God for a way to relate to Him that goes beyond our intellect or around our intellect or however you want to phrase it. Now, if someone is perfectly satisfied with their ability to relate to God through their understanding, then they really sense no need for the gift of tongues. But if the day comes when they desire to relate to God beyond their ability to understand, then they should seek God for the gift of tongues. But let me explain to you how this works very practically in my life. As I minister, I'll have people come up to me and they'll say, Oh, I, uh, Pastor David, would you pray? I want to receive the gift of tongues. What I usually say is, Why? Why do you want to receive the gift of tongues? 
And this is what I want to get at. There are many people who want to seek the gift of tongues for the wrong reason. The wrong reason is this. They want to prove something to themselves or to other people. They want to prove something to themselves or to others that they are really filled with the Holy Spirit. And they say, well, this is it, right? This is how you prove it. Can I just say, the gift of tongues is not the primary or not the exclusive evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And friends, you can be marvelously filled with the Holy Spirit and not have the gift of tongues. And so this idea that you should seek the gift of tongues to prove either to yourself or to somebody else that you are filled with the Spirit, can I just, let's just get over that. Get over it already. Look, if you're a child of God, if you've asked the Spirit of God to fill you, if you've yielded to the Spirit, you're filled with the Spirit. And whether or not God would give you the gift of tongues, that's a completely secondary thing. So the first thing I try is, why do you want the gift of tongues? And then I ask him this question. I say, listen, do you ever feel that there's more praise and worship in your heart than you can articulate to God? It's like your heart is just so full that you can't find the words. Do you ever feel that there are times when you want to pray for yourself or for somebody else and the need is so big or so complicated, you just can't put it into words. You don't have the words. You can't articulate it. Do do you ever feel like that? And listen, I get two reactions. Sometimes people say, yes, I feel like that. Now, if they say yes, I say, great, then let's seek the Lord for the gift of tongues. I think God wants to give it to you. If they say no... I say, well, then don't sweat it, brother. When you do feel like that, then let's seek God for the gift of tongues. And the last thing in the world I try to do is make him feel guilty about it. You know, if you were really spiritual, you'd want this thing. No. Why would I ever put that trip on them? Listen, the gift of tongues is there to meet a need. And that need is when we need to, so to speak, bypass our understanding in our communication with God. And for some people, they feel a great need for that. For other people, for whatever reason, at this time or this season, or maybe it's their entire Christian life, they just don't feel that need. Well, friends, if you don't feel the need, then don't seek God for the gift. But if you do... Seek God for the gift and believe that He wants to give it to you. We can say that all language is an agreement between the one speaking and the one listening. They agree that certain sounds mean certain things, right? I give the sound dog. And and so you all thought of a dog, right? We have an agreement. That sound means that. If you want to put it in another language, I could say to a German audience, Hund. Now, okay, dog, right? A dog came to your mind, right? If you're German, it came to your mind right then. You see, it's a certain agreement. This sound represents this. When we speak in tongues, we agree with God that He understands what His Spirit leads us to say, even though we don't understand it. And we believe also that because it's prayer led by the Spirit, that it's perfectly suited to the matter at hand. Now, I have found great value in praying for people and praying for myself in a language unknown to me, but that I believe is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And even though I don't understand it, I trust that God does. And believe me, this has really come in handy. 
when we were in Germany. I'll just give you an example. This is the only place, but it sure came up handy there. Some German brother would come up to me and explain his need. And my German wasn't so hot. So I would understand about 50, 60% of what he was saying when he poured out his need. But he would want me to pray for him. Now listen, it can be a dangerous thing to pray with about 50 or 60% knowledge, right? (laughs) And so many times I would pray in this language. I believe that God has given me to pray where I could connect with God on 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 an aspect, on a channel that would bypass my understanding but connect with God on a spiritual level. And let me tell you something else. Oftentimes when I prayed for those people, they didn't even know that I was praying for them in tongues. Because I would just do it softly. I'd do it quietly unto myself. I would pray for them. They just thought, well, man, Pastor David got kind of quiet right now. What's he doing? And I would just pray for them softly. Now, why wouldn't I pray? Sometimes, well, why didn't you pray louder? They would say, and I'd say this. Brother, I'm not speaking to you. God hears me just fine, right? Now, I'm not doing this this prayer in tongues as a display, as a way to say, well, let me show you how spiritual I am, and I'll bust this out before you. No, listen, I I don't like that. I'm not into that. I I want to pray to God and God can hear me and God answers and God does that in a beautiful way. Listen, this is my experience of it. I think it's the experience of hundreds and thousands and hundreds of thousands of others. Even though the person I'm praying for may not understand it and rarely hears it, I trust that God does and I see great fruit that comes forth from it. Now, If our understanding is unfruitful, as Paul says here, how does one actually pray or speak in tongues? Now, everyone's experience may be slightly different, but generally I think we can make some observations. We can say this, that it doesn't happen as someone just opens their mouth and God takes over their tongue and speaking apparatus. Although I've heard some people say that that's how it works. It doesn't happen as one just opens their mouth and begins to wiggle their tongue and God takes over. I've heard people say that's how it should work. It doesn't happen as somebody opens their mouth and just begins to repeat a nonsense word over and over again until God takes over. It doesn't happen that way. Actually, the language of tongues works very much like the languages we understand. A word or a sound occurs to our mind and we vocalize that word or sound. And in the gift of tongues, someone just continues to speak the words, the sounds that come into their mind, trusting that God is prompting them and that he understands what they are saying and that what they are saying is perfectly appropriate for the moment. It's not all that different. It's just that that word or sound that comes into your mind, it makes no sense to you. And you're giving a little challenge of faith there, right? Lord, I prayed that you would give me the gift of tongues. And now as I wait before you, I have what seems to be a nonsense word or phrase that comes into my mind. Should I pray it or not? Well, my counsel to you is you prayed for the gift of tongues, did you not? And you said, but, but I don't understand it. That's the point. <laughs> if you didn't want that, well, then maybe it's not the right time for you. But this is what God wants to give you. The, the, the word or the phrase will come into your mind. Now you have the challenge of faith to pray it forth. And friends, you can pray it forth with your own mouth. May I, as the Spirit gave them utterance, volume can be controlled, speed can be controlled, all of that such. 
Nobody needs to shout out across the room with an utterance of tongue saying, well, the Holy Spirit made me shout it. No, you chose to shout. Even if it was determined that it was the Holy Spirit that gave the inspiration to do it, which would be debatable, but even if you could, you control the volume and the pitch and all the rest of it. Now, friends, the gift of tongues has a very important place in the devotional life of the believer, but it has a smaller place in the corporate life of the church, especially in public meetings. And I wish we had more time to go into more of this, but but let me just say that here we see that this actually was a fairly brief time that all the disciples were speaking in these tongues. When it came down to bring the message to the audience, Peter spoke in this language that they all understood. And that brings us to verse 14 where we read, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said, and by the way, I, I can't pass it. He raised his voice. Isn't that glorious? Peter. Peter, who just a few weeks before was cowering before a little servant girl. Oh, I don't even know this Jesus of Nazareth guy. That Peter, now he's standing up before thousands, some of who were hostile enough to just a few weeks before cry out, crucify them in the presence of Jesus. Now Peter stands before them and not only speaks, he raises his voice. He's delivering a message that they need to hear about who Jesus is and what he did for them on the cross. And so he raises his voice. And we should notice that the speaking in tongues stopped when Peter began to preach. Now the Holy Spirit worked through Peter's preaching, and the Holy Spirit would not work against himself with the distraction of tongues when Peter was preaching. And friends, that's why if some well-intentioned brother or sister were to stand up in our midst and start shouting out some message in tongues during the message that I'm preaching... It would not be welcome. <laughs> you, you see, look, as, as weak and as fallible as my efforts are, we are opening the Word of God here and endeavoring to understand it together. And, and right now, this is the work that the Holy Spirit is doing. That, that, that exercise of the gift of tongues may have its appropriate place in some other setting, in some other place, but not while the preaching of the Word is going on. And so if some brother or sister, again, well-intentioned as they might be, were to stand up and give sort of a counter-message, or maybe they thought they'd be helping me along or something, we would, we would just trust that the ushers would come along and show them a more excellent way. And again... Again, I would take it that they would be well-intentioned. I'm always instructed by the story of uh, Pastor Nick Long of Calvary Chapel Sieg in Germany. This man has been used in a mighty way to build God's work in Europe. And the man who was the pastor of the church where I had the Bible college and all of that. That the first time he ever stepped into a Calvary Chapel, he walked in, but they carried him out because he felt that there was something that everybody should hear with his gift of tongues in that congregation. And as he was shouting it out, the ushers came along and just carried him out. Well, I mean, he wasn't a lost cause or anything like that. He was a well-intentioned but mistaken man who just needed to be shown a more excellent way. And so again, this is what happened. Peter begins to preach and everybody's... He raises his voice. And what does he say? He says, 
men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Now, now what had the mockers in the crowd said? They said, oh, these guys, they're just drunk. And Peter stands up and he says, no, they're not drunk. And one of the evidences he gives to, to argue that they're not drunk is he says, listen, it's unthinkable that people would be drunk so early in the day at about nine o'clock in the morning or so. And I would say it was particularly true in that culture because according to some commentators, most Jews, whether they were religious or not, they did not eat or drink until after nine o'clock in the morning anyway. That was just their custom. And so Peter's like, how could it be? It's too early. Nobody's eating or drinking before this. And if you're assigning this to drunkenness, we would have had to have been drinking for some time. But he says, no, we're not drunk. Now, we shouldn't think for a moment that the Christians were acting as if they were drunk. This idea of being drunk in the Spirit, it has no foundation in Acts chapter 2. The comment from these mockers on the day of Pentecost had no basis in reality. Oh, sure, they shouted, oh, these guys are just drunk. But listen, you can't say this. You can't say, well, the mockers in the crowd accused them of being drunk. It must have seemed like they were. Well, let me just say this. People also accused Jesus of being a drunk. They accused Jesus of being demon-possessed. They accused Jesus of being crazy. Are we going to say that Jesus acted like those things? It doesn't mean that any of the things were even remotely true. And to add to this, this simple truth. Listen, I haven't been around a lot of drunk people in my life. In that regard, I've led a fairly sheltered life. But, but I've never been around a drunk person who started praising God in a brand new language. <laughs> I, is, this you tell, is this typical conduct for drunk people? The accusation, they must be drunk, came just because the mockers present there didn't know what else to say. So they just said something. What we can say is this, that being filled with the Spirit is not like being drunk. As Paul would later write in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, he would say this, And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. You see, in contrast to being filled with the Spirit is this carnal aspect of being drunk. And the Bible condemns drunkenness without reservation. But you see, don't miss the contrast. Paul says, but be filled with the Spirit. Paul contrasts the effect of the Holy Spirit with the state of drunkenness. Friends, you know what alcohol does, right? Alcohol is a depressant. Why do people seem loose and kind of crazy under the influence of alcohol? Because it depresses their self-control. It depresses their wisdom. It depresses their balance. It depresses their judgment. I'll tell you this, and I can say this with, with all confidence. The Holy Spirit of God is not a depressant. The Holy Spirit of God is a stimulant. He has exactly the opposite effect. He moves every aspect of our being to better and more perfect performance. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control, not the loss of it. Now, that's not to say that strange and unusual things might from time to time happen under the work of the Spirit of God. We understand that. We accept that. But in the whole... 
Listen, friends, we understand being filled with the Spirit is not like being drunk. We're going to get back to Peter's sermon the next time we're together. And I almost feel bad that we just got a couple of verses into it because this is one of the most spectacular sermons in all of the Bible. But we'll get to it. We'll give it its due. But I can't leave this text right now without just saying this. We've talked a lot about this gift of being able to spontaneously speak in an unknown language so that you can communicate with God around your understanding. Where the Spirit knows what you're saying, but you may be ignorant. My simple question to you is, do you want this gift of the Holy Spirit? Some of you are saying, no, not really. I don't feel a need for it. God bless you. Don't sweat it. Don't let anybody make you feel guilty or unspiritual. But if the day comes where you feel like, I need this, then you get on your knees and seek God for it. You come up and have somebody else pray with you for this gift. You seek God diligently for it. And because you're asking a person, the Holy Spirit, to do it, He'll do it in His time, in His wisdom, in His way. But you believe Him that He wants to do it. But for others of you, I say, do you want this gift of the Holy Spirit? I would have to believe there's more than a few here today. You say, I want this. I feel like I need this. There's more praise in my heart than I can articulate. There's needs that I just can't. It's just bigger than the words that can come out of my mouth. Then you'll have the opportunity when we have the prayer team up from here. You come up and you just say, would you pray for me for this? And I'm not telling you that any kind of specific experience is going to happen right here, right now. It may very well. And I would be surprised if it didn't for anybody. But listen again, we're asking a person to give a gift, not a machine. And the Holy Spirit gives these gifts as He wills in His timing and His way. And your experience may not be just like my experience. Oh, but God will give you a glorious experience of this. And I believe this is a gift that God wants to give the seeking heart. If that's you, believe that God is big enough and loves you enough to give it to you this morning.